Welcome back to the Grand Valley Church Podcast, a community of faith in Brandon, Manitoba. We hope this message helps you meet Jesus and grow in faith. So before we uh, jump into our topic today, I want to introduce something that's coming up in two weeks' time. In two weeks, on February 3rd, we're going to be launching into a new series here called What Happy Couples Know. And basically, who doesn't, if you're married, who doesn't want a stronger marriage? All of us want a stronger, happier, more joyful marriage. And so we're going to be doing a series where we're going to spend four weeks talking about what happy couples know. Now, if you're not married or maybe you're, maybe you're engaged or maybe you're thinking of getting married someday, this series is going to be an awesome pre-marriage kind of information things to know. And if you're not married and you're saying, you know, I have no plans of getting married, this series is still for you because when we talk about relationships, when we talk about marriage, everything that we learn still applies to other relationships, relationships with family, with friends, with coworkers, there's still going to be great pieces and things for you to learn in this series. And we're going to be talking about how to manage expectations. We're going to be talking about how do you serve one another. A big one, how do you fight? How do you fight well? How do you fight properly? How do you wrestle through stuff well? And then the last piece, we're going to be talking about the fact that having a happy marriage, having a happy relationship of any type is a choice for us to make. And so that's going to be starting on February 3rd. And this is an, a great starting point. If you, you know, know someone that you want to invite to church, this series is a great place to start for that. Now, maybe don't go and say to your friend, hey, your marriage is in trouble. Come to church with me. Or, or maybe that might work. You know, you know your friends, you know, better than I do. But this would be a, a really great starting point to invite someone to say, hey, we're doing a series that's all about helping people have happy, healthy, joyful marriages. So that's starting February 3rd. And one of the things that's cool about this series is this series is part of something new that we're starting this year at our church. And that's that about twice a year, we're going to do a video series together. And so this series, What Happy Couples Know, it's not going to be me up here speaking. We're actually going to have Andy Stanley from North Point Church in Atlanta. He's actually going to be on our screens teaching this. He is an, an amazing communicator. Some of you know him, know of him, or maybe you listen to his podcast, but it's one that you really want want to be here for. So just, you know, we're going to talk about this again next week as well, but starting February 3rd through the month of February, we're going to be talking about how do we build happy, healthy, joyful marriages. So you'll want to be here for that. But today we are in a series right now called Out of the Darkness that we started just after Christmas. And we're talking about this concept of saying, you know, how do we move out of darkness and into light? And we've been using this definition of saying that darkness is any part of our lives we'd rather hide away. You know, all of us have pieces in our lives, pieces um, in our past that we would rather stay buried and hidden away. But those things actually affect us, and we're going to be talking about a big one of those today. But just as we get into this, I want to invite you, if you have your phone with you, open up the YouVersion Bible app, or you can download it if you don't have it, and go to the Events tab, and if you search for our church, search for Grand Valley, you'll find us, and you can follow along with the message and take any notes. You can see all the scripture passages we're using. All that is right in the app. So again, I said the darkness is any part of our lives we would rather keep hidden? What are the things that actually affect us even though we think they don't? We think, you know, that thing happened a long time ago, but it still is there. And so we started this series off talking about how do we actually take a risk of making a change, of taking a step, because sometimes it's unknown and it's scary. Even if it's a step in the right direction, a step in a positive direction, sometimes there's risk involved in that. And then last week, we were talking about fear. How do we overcome 
fear. And we talked about this, that God's perfect love is what drives out fear. And so how do we overcome fear? Well, we need to search for a deeper connection to God's love for us. And so today we're talking about another one of these barriers to change, the barriers, the things that try to hold us back. And that barrier today we're talking about is shame. Now, just so you know, right off the bat, we're not doing a discussion time at the end because I don't think anyone actually wants to talk about shame in a large group. And maybe you're thinking, man, I should have signed up for next, you know, so I could dodge this this morning, but you're here. And so let's dive into this because this is something that does affect every one of us. You know, when we have an issue, when we have some sort of a problem that we all experience, shame is the little thing that says, just bury it and hide it away. Just, just put it away in the corner and it'll go away. Now, you can be honest. When, when, I just have a question for you, and this, isn't, this is an easy one you can answer. When the check engine light comes on in your car, are you someone that like, immediately pulls over and has your car towed to a dealership or a mechanic? Or do you go the, you know, tap the, get, tap the dashboard as if that's going to change and go, eh, I'll deal with that later. You know, who, who takes it to the mechanic right away? Who says we'll deal with it later? Come on, be honest. You know, how many of you go, eh, you know what, it's just, it's just a little extra illumination. You know, it makes it easier to see the gauges, right? See, how often does that check engine light just go away on its own? It doesn't. Sometimes, maybe you're lucky, maybe it's just a little glitch, but usually it isn't. See, if that check engine stays there, have you, any of you been driving and had the flashing check engine light pop up? That's the, like, your car's about to go in limp mode and you're actually not going to make it home. See, shame, whenever we have an issue, says let's just hide it away, but problems don't go away. You actually have to address whatever the issue is that causes that check engine light to come on. Or maybe you think, you know, I, I, you, you can think of an example like, you know, I made a mistake at work a while ago and it, it just went away. You know, chances are someone else fixed your mistake and they just didn't want to tell you they fixed your mistake. See, even when we think a problem that we pushed away to the corner just disappeared on its own, likely it was actually became someone else's problem that they had to deal with and they've just been nice to you by not telling you that you made a mistake. See, whenever we have a problem, shame tells us to bury it as deep as possible and then go throw away the shovel. See, shame says, hide your mistakes. Shame says, hide your pain. Shame says, hide your flaws. Because if they're hidden, they won't affect you. See, but that's a problem with it. Because shame often comes from a character problem. Either a mistake we've made or a flaw. Or sometimes shame is even tied to a habit or an addiction that we can't break. And even though every time we say, you know, I'm not going to act like that. I'm not going to do that again. But every time we come back to it and we realize, oh, you know, I did the thing again. Well, and shame makes us say, well, if we just bury it a little deeper, you know, pile a little more dirt on top of that pile and it won't surface the next time. Shame tries to hide it and push it away in the corner and, say, and tells you this lie that if you put it away, it won't affect you. But the thing is, shame is actually more like a seed than something to bury and hide. Because when we bury shame, it takes a little while, but it germinates and it grows like a seed and it starts laying roots in our lives. And, and if you've ever like, had to dig like a fence post or something and you encounter tree roots, like it is a pain to get tree roots out of the way. Or maybe you know, you're, you're like me and you have trees in your front yard and so every year you have to deal with getting the sewer lines routed to cut the roots out because they're blocking it. And if you don't, you're getting a sewer backup. See, 
when shame gets buried, it starts trying to drive roots into every part of our lives. And if we want to get rid of shame, we have to do something about that. Because shame is based on this lie of saying, shame will not affect you if you bury it, but the truth is, it does. And we all already know this. I'm not telling you something you don't know when we talk about shame affecting us when we try to bury something. But the way that shame affects us is often this kind of insidious way that we don't always detect right off the bat. And that's the fact that shame tells us lies about who we are. When we feel shame about something, that shame tells a lie. And that's the roots that it intertwines in our lives. And, and there's lots of lies that shame tells us about who we are. And I'm just going to run through some examples of them because shame will say, they'll never forgive you for blank. And you can fill in the blank and you're, you're mentally you probably can fill in the blanks yourselves on this. You're never going to be happy because of blank. You're never going to be free of blank. No one will love you because of blank. You aren't worthy because of blank. See, this is the lie that shame tells us. Shame tells us lies that are about our identity, about who we are as people. And when shame is in there and it lays its roots, we start thinking this, you know, I could never talk to someone about that time I offended them. And I know I offended them, but I can't tell them because they're never going to forgive me. Or maybe they think, you know, sometimes it's even, even if there's something was done to you that you feel shame about. And you think, I'm not worthy because of that thing that happened years ago. I only have worth if I can overcome that. And so we try to do it ourselves. We try to overcome shame by ourselves. But the problem is, is these lies take more than our own mental capacity to defeat. See, shame is a liar that attacks our identity. It tries to make us feel less than who we are. When we have something in our past, when we have either a character flaw, maybe a habit or an addiction, or maybe even it's a wound, something that happened to you, wasn't something you did, wasn't something you caused, was something that should never happen to anyone. But we feel shame about it because, so what we do is we shove it to the corner and we bury it deep and we think it'll go away on its own. But it doesn't. See, when we make a deal with shame and we let it be there, it affects our identity. It affects who we think we are. So how do you defeat shame? That's what we're going to focus on because we know what shame is. We've all experienced it, but how do we defeat it? That's what matters. How do we overcome it? How do we get rid of it? See, we talked about how a little bit of how shame is like a seed that gets planted. But shame is some sort of weird like anti-plant. See, plants need light to grow. Any normal, natural plant that we experience needs light to grow. But shame is a different sort of plant because when it gets exposed to the light, it doesn't grow. It withers away. How many of you have been, you know, maybe you've weeded something. If you pull out a weed and you toss it on the sidewalk and you leave it, what happens is the sun beats down and it withers away and it shrivels up. That's what shame does when it's exposed to the light. And our theme verse for this whole series has been John 8, 12, when Jesus tells a group of his followers and people that are walking with him and he tells them, I am the light of the world. I am the light that leads to life. See, if we want to overcome shame, we have to expose it to the truth of God's love. 
If we want to overcome whatever it is that we've buried and pushed away, we actually have to uncover and let it get drawn into God's light. Because when shame is exposed out of the darkness and into the light, it can't grow. In fact, that's how we get rid of the way that it affects our identity, is by actually exposing it to God's light. Because if shame tells us a lie, you have to counter the lie with truth. One of the deepest truths, one of the most fundamental truths that is echoed and repeated through Scripture time and time and time again is this, that God loves us dearly. God created us. God never intended for us to be overcome and racked with shame and guilt and fear. And so for every single one of those, God made a way to overcome it. God made a way to defeat it so that we could walk in the fullness of his light and his love. See, if shame tells us lies, then how we expose shame to the light is by encountering God's truth. And this is the most fundamental truth. God loves you and nothing, not even the shame of your mistakes, not even the shame of your past can separate you from his love. And there's a passage that describes this, Romans 8, 35 to 39. We're not going to read through it in length together here, but I'd encourage you this week sometime, open your Bible and read through this passage because it lists all the things that cannot separate us from God's love. Paul makes this list of everything that cannot affect us or draw us away from God's love. And those are things that we actually have to remember and implant in our mind. That even when we have that moment of shame, we have that moment of feeling that comes up that says, oh, you know, I'm an awful person because of that. We need to say, no, but that does not separate me from God's love. That does not prevent me from experiencing God's truth. And in fact, when we step into God's love, when we step into God's truth, that's the light that makes shame wither away and die. See, in Scripture, our New Testament, the first four books are the Gospels, the story of Jesus' life as told by eyewitnesses and people who later compiled everything together to give us an account, an accurate account of who Jesus is and what he did. And then the rest of the New Testament, after the book of Acts, which is the story of the early church, the rest of the New Testament is actually a collection of letters. When we read the New Testament, we're actually peeking into someone else's mailbox and reading the letters that were written to encourage and strengthen and build up the church. And sometimes these letters, like the letters of Corinthians that we're going to be in for the remainder of today, is a series. There's 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. There's a first letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, and then a second follow-up letter that he wrote later on. And we can start to see when we have these times where there's multiple letters to one church or there's multiple letters to a grouping of churches, we can actually see how they were developing. How were they putting into practice what was told to them the first time? And that's how we learn about how God wants us to be a church, how God wants us to follow him. And so the first letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church is one of the longer letters. It's the second longest letter that he wrote. And when you read this letter, there are parts of it that are so deeply encouraging. There are parts of it that are so, you know, you read it and you can't help but feel a little bit excited. You know, what would it have felt like to be in that church 2,000 years ago and have someone come and say, hey, I've got a new letter from Paul. He wrote to us and he starts reading these encouragements. Like, I can't imagine just how excited you would feel to hear that. But if you've read 
parts of 1 Corinthians, you'll know that not all of the letter is encouraging. There are some parts where Paul digs into some deep-seated issues in this Corinthian church. And he writes very boldly and very bluntly, and he calls out the things that are preventing them from being the church that God wants them to be. He calls out the, the sin issues. He calls out the shame issues. He calls out the lie issues that this church is facing. And so parts of this letter, if you were you know, in that church having it read to you for the first time, you'd probably be cringing a little bit and been like, oh, I don't want to hear that. I don't like that. See, but Paul wrote this first letter for a reason. And then later on, when he writes his second letter to the Corinthian church, he addresses that first letter. And this is what we're going to talk about today. This is where we're going to follow because Paul talks about how they responded to the first letter. And that's what we can learn from today. See, in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8, Paul says this, I am not sorry that I sent that severe letter to you, though I was sorry at first, for I know it was painful to you for a little while. See, Paul doesn't apologize for correcting them. But he does acknowledge the fact that when we want to defeat shame, when we want to overcome something in our lives, it's not always going to be completely easy and comfortable. There are moments where there's going to be difficult things. There's going to be hard conversations to work through. There's going to be things that don't feel comfortable to us. But Paul says, I'm not sorry for that. I was sorry at first, but I know it was painful to you for a little while. Why? See, Paul goes on, the next verse says this, Now I am glad that I sent it, not because it hurt you, but because the pain caused you to repent and change your ways. It was the kind of sorrow God wants his people to have, so you were not harmed by us in any way. See, he's reminding them again that I told you what I told you. I told you the things you needed to change. I told you what you needed to overcome for a reason. The pain caused you to repent and change your ways. Now, repent is this word that is usually kind of only used in the church. And it simply means this, to turn from one direction and turn towards another. That's all in Greek it means. It means to go, I was heading on this path, and now I've repented. I've turned direction, and now I'm walking a different path. And this term gets used when we talk about having an encounter with Jesus, of saying, you know, this was the direction my life was going, and then I met Jesus. And my life changed. How many, you know, we have those stories of how our lives have been shaped and transformed when we encounter Jesus, when we encounter his love, when we encounter his hope, when we encounter his grace and his forgiveness, our lives change. And that's what this means, to repent. He says, it was the kind of sorrow that God wants his people to have. So you were not harmed. He reminds them again, you know, you weren't harmed by the pain you went through. It was difficult, but it didn't wound you. And then he goes on and he explains this kind of sorrow God wants his people to have in the next verse. He says, for the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. That's that repent language. We were heading in this direction and now we've turned And we're actually walking in salvation in the depth of a relationship with God. He says, there is no regret for that kind of sorrow. We should celebrate that kind of change, that kind of sorrow. He says, but this, but worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. See, Paul is contrasting two types of sorrow. He's contrasting a worldly sorrow 
and a godly sorrow. And, and shame is, is a newer word. And so I think if, if Paul was writing this today, he would have used shame instead of worldly sorrow. See, worldly sorrow makes us want to hide our mistakes and believe the lie that we cannot change, that we will never be different from what we are now. But godly sorrow, the kind of sorrow that Paul is writing about in this second letter to the Corinthian church, he says it makes us want to change, to repent, so we can experience God's forgiveness and his love. See, when we expose whatever it is that we've buried away, when we expose that to the light, that's part of that process of change, of repentance, of moving from one direction towards another. And when we do that, there is no shame in godly sorrow. And in fact, it's what leads us into experiencing God's forgiveness and his love. So I'm not going to lie to you and tell you that it is always going to be easy because it won't be. It's going to be tough. When we uncover our character issues, when we uncover our wounds, there is difficulty and it's uncomfortable at times. But we have to remember something as we, when we're in those moments. We have to look forwards to what is this going to lead to? What's this going to take us towards by going through this valley, through this difficult time? Because that's when we get to experience God's forgiveness and his love. And last week we talked about experiencing God's perfect love and how it drives out fear. See, when we go through that time, when we go through that process and we start to dig into what does it mean to experience God's forgiveness and his love, as the shame withers away, the pain disappears with it. And we get to walk in the fullness of who Jesus is. See, when shame encounters God's love, it turns into godly sorrow. And we can actually make a difference. We can actually change and see our lives change. And then we look back on it later on and we say, wow, that was a difficult season. But who I am on the other side of it, who I am now, that transformation that's happened in me, we actually look back at it and we say, you know, that sucked. That was difficult. That was hard. But I wouldn't trade it away. Because what it led to was a deeper understanding of God's love for me, a deeper understanding of who God says I am, not who my shame says I am. So if we want to change our lives, if we actually want to experience the fullness of who God is, we have to deal with shame. We can't just let it stay buried there. So how do we actually do that? And I want to give us three really hyper-practical steps for if you want to defeat shame, here, here's a starting point. Here's the first three steps that we can do. And then later we're going to come to communion and we're going to talk about how communion factors into this as well. See, the first step to defeating shame is to find community. Shame is something that is incredibly hard to defeat when we try to go at it alone. In fact, when Paul was writing to the Corinthian church, nothing he wrote in that second letter when he talks about how you encountered you know, this severe letter I wrote before and how you changed, all of it was written in the plural. It was written to you as the community. See, we actually have to find community and walk together with people. And that takes vulnerability. That takes a deep relationship. That takes being able to trust one another. That's why life groups are so important. Because in a life group is where you can get to know a group of people and you're there to care for one another, to grow deep together. And it can be a place where you can actually talk about, you know, I am fighting with this right now and I need help. That's why community matters so much. 
Now, when we are in community, when someone is willing to be vulnerable and share, this is what I'm dealing with, this is what I need help with, that puts a lot of responsibility on us of how do we be a community around that person, knowing that maybe in a week or a month's time, it might, the roles might be reversed, and now I need your help. So when we do that, we have to walk with care and compassion. And I want to talk about something that's super important in this. See, sometimes when we talk about exposing things, we think, well, it just needs to be laid completely out in the open. I should get up in front of everyone and just say, well, this is what my shame is. No, that's not actually what we're talking about. Lisa Tykerst says this way better than I could, and so I'm going to quote her here. She's the president of Proverbs 31 Ministries and the author of a book called It's Not Supposed to Be This Way. And she says this, secrecy is keeping things hidden so that the sin behind it can be perpetuated. But privacy is keeping things hidden for the sake of healing. If you want to utterly stop someone else from finding the healing from their shame they're looking for, all you have to do is gossip about it. Gossip destroys any attempt for someone else to come free of their shame. That's why gossip is spoken against so many times throughout the New Testament of saying, you know, if someone comes to you in your life group and you guys talk about, you know, something that someone is wrestling together with, we have to respect their privacy because it's about the sake of moving towards healing. Now, if someone says, you know, you know, I don't, I, I want to deal with this, but I don't want to tell my spouse ever. It's like, well, at some point you need to, you can walk with them. At some point, it's going to be up to them to say, you know, when are you going to reveal this to your spouse? When are you going to walk through those things together? So you have to walk that line. And the, the, the simple fact of the matter is, is that the person who is dealing with their shame and is asking for help, they're going to be the driver of at what time is it okay to, to share and to talk about this with you. You know, we as a community, is whenever you come around someone that it, you're helping on a path towards healing, we have a responsibility to them. And that's why this distinction between secrecy and privacy is so important because we actually have to give privacy because it's what helps us lead towards healing. And so gossip, don't gossip. Gossip kills community. We all know that. Second step after we've found community is we need to replace shame's lies with God's truth and his love. And so every time that piece of shame says, you know, they'll never forgive you or you'll never be forgiven because you did this, we actually have to remind ourselves, no, I've already been forgiven by God. And that's the forgiveness that matters. We, when we feel a lie that says, you know, you'll never amount to anything because you have that skeleton in your closet, that thing you've buried away. We have to remind ourselves, no, God actually has a plan for us. God has gifts and talents and abilities he's given each one of us for the sake of something greater. And so every time we encounter one of those lies... We actually have to go to the truth of Scripture. We have to go to what God says. And oftentimes, that's where the role that community plays. Now, it's not to force something down someone's throat, but when they say, you know, is God angry at me? Am I dealing with this because God is angry at me? You can say, no, God's not angry with you. In fact, God is walking with you through this because he loves you. And so that's how, as a community, we speak truth with love into each other. And see, and the last one is we have to let God define our new identity. Oh, sorry, I missed a point. Let me go back for a second. As part of replacing shame's lies with God's truth and love, we need to encounter two very important things, mercy and grace. See, mercy 
is when we don't give someone what they deserve, a punishment that they deserve. You know, you think about, you know, when you cry out for mercy, you're saying, you know, don't give me the punishment that I deserve. When we walk with someone who's dealing with shame, who's, when we, or when our, us ourselves are, and we ask for mercy, that means we don't unnaturally punish people for what they've done. Because God doesn't punish us. God loves us and wants to draw us towards it. And grace is when we are given something that we do not deserve. No one deserves God's forgiveness, and no one deserves God's love. But he gives it so freely to every single person because of it's his nature, it's who he is. And so how we replace shame's lies with God's truth and love and how we do this as a community is by constantly coming back to mercy and grace. We don't punish people for what's been done, but we give them what they don't deserve. We give them the love they don't deserve. We give them the forgiveness they don't deserve. We give them the patience they don't deserve because In those gifts, when we give love, when we give patience, when we give forgiveness, that's like pouring gas on the shame and throwing a match on it. It destroys it. It obliterates it. Because God's love and his forgiveness kills shame. And the last piece was we have to let God define our new identity. See, shame's been telling lies to us our whole lives often. And when we get rid of those lies, we can't just leave it vacant. We actually have to let God speak into our identity and who we are as people. And if we go a little earlier in Paul's letter, the second letter to the Corinthian church, he says this, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17, he says, This means anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, the new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God, that grace, that undeserved gift who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. That's what God does. He changes our identity. He speaks new truths into our lives. All of us have a part to play in what God is trying to do in our world. You know, I, I think about the, the big picture of like, what it, why does the church exist? Why do we matter? Why are we here? Why are we specifically Grand Valley here in Brandon? And every time the, the rational, logical side of my brain says, wouldn't it just be simpler if God did everything on his own? Why does he need us? Wouldn't that be the logical approach? Because he's all powerful. He can reveal himself. He could do everything without us. Wouldn't that be simpler? But then I start, I come back to the way that Jesus described himself. And he describes himself as a good shepherd, the good teacher. What's a teacher without students? What's a shepherd without sheep? Nothing. See, it gives God joy when us, his creation, work alongside of him. You know, I'm... uh, at times, starting to get to experience this with, with my kids. And sometimes, you know, I'm doing a little project and I say, Olivia, you know, can you hand me that screwdriver? And she has a look of joy when she does it. Now, sometimes she grabs a screwdriver and runs off around the house. Like, so, you know, there's, there's some growth there coming. My dad tells me this story and it was, I was really young at the time. And my, my parents built the house or, or like, well, basically built the house from scratch that we grew up in. 
And my dad tells this story often of when I was really little and he was doing all the electrical outlets. And so he's, you know, in a room and you're just going outlet to outlet. And you're doing the same thing, the same task. You know, you strip the wire, put on the outlet, screw it in, put the cover plate on, move to the next one. And he said, I was probably about like two and a half, three, like walking around, kind of talking. And he said he got like halfway through the first room before he realized that I was handing him the tools in the order he needed them. And he, he was just, he had said, he tells me this story. He has this moment of just stopping and realizing like you figured out I needed the wire strippers and then this screwdriver and then that screwdriver. And each outlet I went to, you were handing me the wire strippers, that screwdriver, that screwdriver. You know, that's 27, 28 years ago. And that story still impacts my dad. And he loves that story. Don't you think it's the same way with God and us? Don't you think he takes joy in us being the ones who get to carry out his will, that get to work alongside him, that get to see lives being changed and transformed? That's what it means when Paul says, and God has given us this task of reconciling people. To reconcile is to bring back to the way it is meant to be. That's what God calls us to. So this morning, I want to give you an opportunity to defeat shame. I want to give you an opportunity to be reconciled back into a relationship with God. And we're going to do that through this practice that we have in the church that we've kept for since the night of the Last Supper of communion. And communion, the the Greek word that, that is the root of this literally means to come into union with God. When we say communion, we're actually talking about coming into a union, coming into a relationship, into a connection with God. And then in the the communion, what we do is we reenact part of the last supper that Jesus had with his disciples. And he had been telling his disciples for about a year that he is going to get killed, that they're going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to be crucified. He's going to be executed, not for anything he's done. And the disciples often tried to talk Jesus out of it. And saying, no, this can't be the way. If you really are the Messiah, this can't happen. You can't die. But Jesus kept saying, yes, it's going to happen. And so on the last supper, the last meal he had with his disciples, he took wine and bread. We use grape juice and bread. And just so you know, the bread on the silver trays is gluten-free if you need that. But he took the elements and he gave them to his disciples and, and said, this is representing my body and my blood, which is going to be poured out as a sacrifice for you. See, Jesus knew that his death would accomplish something so much more, that his death makes this new life, this transformation possible. Because of something that happened, and it's just one little verse in scripture that we skip over so many times, we don't realize the significance of it. At the very moment that Jesus died, in Jerusalem there was the temple. And in the center of the temple was this place called the Most Holy Place. And it was the place that housed the Ark of the Covenant. And it was the physical representation of God's presence on earth. And this area, this room, which was you know, not much bigger than this little stage that I'm on, it was a small area, represented the fullness of God's glory and presence with his people. And the high priest was only allowed to enter once per year after this like weeks-long purification ritual. And they would step into God's presence on behalf of the people. And they actually, they would tie a rope around the priest's ankle so that if the priest was so overcome that they died, they could drag the body out without having to go into the most holy place. It's 
crazy. That's, it's like, what happens if you die when you're in God's presence? Well, 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 we'll put a rope on you. We'll drag you out. See, this most holy place was sacred. And the exact moment that Jesus died, the curtains that separated this from the rest of the temple tore in two from top to bottom, were shredded apart. And what that signifies, what that means, is the exact moment that Jesus died, he became the sacrifice that overcomes every single barrier between us and God. Every single thing that could ever stand between us and God has already been defeated and destroyed. And so when we come to communion, we remember that. And so I'm going to invite you to come up. We're going to put on a song in just a moment. We've got three stations up at the front. Come pour yourself some of the juice and take a piece of bread and just sit down and take a moment or maybe talk with who you're with and just say, what does it mean that Jesus has overcome everything? Jesus has already overcome your shame. And after that, the band is going to lead us in one more song and we're going to pass the offering bags again. And what we do with this second offering is this is our benevolent fund. And it's a response that as we have been saved and God has given us so much we want to give back. And so this offering, nothing stays here at the church. We find ways to help people in our city, in our community, in our church with these funds. And so I want to encourage you to be generous when the bags go around as the band leads us in a song. But we're just going to put on a piece of music. And I just want you to think and take a moment and encounter God and that he has already defeated anything that can hold us back. We're running a little late, but you didn't want to go out in the cold anyways, did you? My hope is that as we overcome shame, as we overcome fear, as we overcome the things that try to hold us back from a relationship with God, that we get to experience exactly what we've just sung about, that we get to experience the victory in who Jesus is, the victory over shame, the resurrection, that God has defeated anything that can hold us back from him. So let me take a moment and just pray that over us before we wrap up. Lord, you have overcome it all. You have overcome anything. And the things that hold us back, you take delight in stepping into our lives in walking together with us and removing the barriers. You love us so much, you can't leave us how you find us. And we thank you for that. And Lord, I just pray that we would dig into this with you, that we would draw deep into encountering your grace, your mercy, and your forgiveness, and ultimately your love because your love conquers everything. Lord, I just pray these things in your name. Amen. Folks, next week we are wrapping up our Out of the Darkness series, and we're going to be talking about how do we, how do we heal from pain? How do we heal from wounds? And so I want to encourage you to, to be back here next Sunday uh, and join us with that. Uh, folks, I hope you have a great week and stay warm. We hope this message helped you to take the next step in your faith journey. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 11 a.m. You can find out more about us by going to mygrandvalley.ca.